0: Nino is ramping up and heating the Pacific. The Atlantic is already overheated. Why Dr. Phil Klotzbach is not impressed with El Nino and what this means for the hurricane seasonal forecast. This is NTWC Live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live for Wednesday. August the 9th, 2023. Glad to have you along today. Great program lined up for you today. Dr. Phil Klotzbach is back with us. We're going to get an update on the hurricane seasonal forecast. We'll find out whether he thinks El Nino or the record-setting Atlantic Sea Service temperature is going to win out as we head into the hurricane season. I want to thank our sponsors who are here again this day, this year, for NTWC Live. USAA. South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, and Weather Boy all make these broadcasts a possibility uh, each and every week. So we appreciate what you guys do uh, to make this a reality. Uh, Coming up just a little bit, Dr. Hal Needham is going to jump in the conversation, the uh, disaster scientist, extreme weather disaster scientist with CNC catastrophe uh, and national claims. But first, let's get to Bill Reed, former director of the National Hurricane Center. Bill, one day early, happy pre-birthday.
1: Well, back at you, Tim. Everybody, it's uh, Tim's birthday today. He's ten years younger than me, and that's as far as we're going to go on the numbers game.
0: <laughs> we'll leave it at that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're uh, we're ratcheting up drought to go along with the the heat. We had a, a fairly wet uh, spring across much of Texas, but a lot of that's being erased by the extensive heat wave we've had for the last six weeks or so. And uh there are people telling me they wish we'd get a tropical system to break it. And I keep telling them, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is uh Dr. Phil Klotzbach. Uh he's out of Colorado State, told us it was down to 38 degrees there. Eat your heart out, fellas. And uh <laughs> we, um, uh uh, always love to have Tim on this show. Uh he got his PhD working on the uh, inimitable Dr. Gray. And, and 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 much to our joy, he's followed in, in Dr. Gray's footsteps to keep their work going on the seasonal forecasts. So we've got something new every year. And I always like to bring him back every possibility to tell us what's going on. So uh welcome, Phil.
2: Well, thanks so much, Bill, and thanks so much to all of you for tuning in. Um Let's see. My screen share is loading. Participants can see my thing. Not now let's do this. All right. Um, yeah, let's talk about the hurricane season. You know, it, it, it's been an interesting one and uh, you know, I think this hurricane season itself is kind of presenting us with something we have not seen in the recent historical record. And that is, as bill noted, um, an extremely warm, tropical Atlantic and also um a robust el nino at the same time and so the question is you know it's kind of a battle of the titans which one is going to win out and maybe it's a draw maybe it'll just end up being a dead on average season so i think there's a lot of uncertainty associated with this outlook and if you read outlooks from our group from NOAA, from other groups too there's just a lot of people keep emphasizing just how uncertain um this year is Uh, but i do want to spend some time kind of talking about what we've seen so far and what our outlook is for the remainder of the 2023 season um so here's our final here's our our last forecast that we put out just um a few days ago Uh, we did maintain our numbers from what we put out in early july we're calling for um an above normal hurricane season an average season has 14 storms we're predicting 18 an average season has seven hurricanes, we're predicting nine. An average season has three major hurricanes, we're predicting four. Major hurricanes are Category 3, 4, and 5 hurricanes. On the saffir Simpson hurricane wind scale winds of 111 miles per hour or greater. We're also forecasting above normal levels of accumulated cyclone energy. That's an integrated metric accounting for storm frequency, intensity, and duration. I should note that these numbers do include the storms that have already formed. We had a subtropical storm that formed in January, as well as Arlene, Brett, Cindy and Don. So we're forecasting an additional 13 storms and an additional 8 hurricanes since Dawn last month did reach hurricane strength. Um, to give you an idea of how our forecasts have trended we have actually increased the numbers uh, from April where we forecast a slightly below normal season to June where we forecast pretty much a dead on average season to July and August where we forecast an above normal overall Atlantic hurricane season. Um, and so, you know, the numbers have gone up, but, you know, we did maintain our numbers from July to August. And again, I do want to stress just how uncertain this outlook is. And if you're interested um, with each of our forecasts, we do put out numbers, but there's a really extensive document, 40 to 50 pages long um, on our website that goes into a ton of detail describing kind of what, what we've seen so far and what we expect to see for um, the peak of the hurricane season. Um, as, uh, as Bill noted, uh, I did have the great pleasure of studying under Dr. Bill Gray, and certainly you know, we wouldn't be doing seasonal forecasts at Colorado State if it were not for Dr. Gray. Um, in addition to being the founder of the seasonal forecast and developing these predictions, uh, he made just a tremendous amount of contributions to tropical cyclone, um, intensity change, genesis, structure, just a giant in the field of hurricanes and tropical meteorology. And again, I was very fortunate to have had the opportunity uh, to study with him for over 15 Years, um, learned a tremendous amount from him, um, and we're trying to continue um, his legacy with the seasonal hurricane forecast. Again, this is actually our 40th year of doing seasonal hurricane predictions at Colorado State University. Um, Just to give you an idea, you know, our seasonal forecasts are based on historical data and historical weather and climate patterns. And so the way these got started in the early 1980s was Dr. Gray was kind of a fount of knowledge, basically Wikipedia before we had Wikipedia. And so he knew which years in the past were El Nino years, and he knew which years in the past were busy hurricane seasons in the Atlantic. And he noted in general, when you have El Nino, you tend to get fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic. And so this kind of gives you, you know, the historical relationship. It gives you kind of an empirical relationship, but the challenge is then discovering, you know, why would something going on in the tropical Pacific Ocean impact hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean, thousands of miles away? And so here again, we see these, these composites. So in El Nino, you tend to have warmer water in the eastern and central tropical Pacific. So sea surface temperature anomalies are differences from average that are higher than normal. In La Niña, basically is the opposite of El Nino, colder than normal water. In the eastern and central tropical pacific and then basically through research that he and others did they found that the reason el nino reduced storms in the atlantic in general is that you tend to have higher levels of vertical wind shear which is that change in wind direction and speed with height in the atmosphere too much vertical wind shear is detrimental for storm formation and intensification So normally, the winds at low levels in the Atlantic, so near the ocean surface, blow out of the east. Those are the trade winds. And at upper levels, they blow out of the west. In an El Nino year, you tend to get stronger winds out of the west at upper levels, maybe a little bit stronger trades. And so that overall increases your levels of vertical wind shear. Too much shear in the vertical tilts the hurricane circulation, disrupts it, you don't get the pressure fall. that you need to get the winds to accelerate to reach hurricane strength. So overall, El Nino tends to knock down Atlantic storms, and especially your stronger storms. So the relationship with the number of storms is there, but it's stronger for hurricanes and even stronger for major hurricanes because the stronger the storms, the more overall larger area of a conducive environment that you need. Um, But I want to dive back into 2023. Just a very brief reminder. Again, we are forecasting an above normal hurricane season. Um, So kind of give you kind of what's going on right now. Here are the current sea surface temperature anomalies or differences from average across the globe. Um, and you can see the blue rectangle denotes the tropical pacific ocean so you can see warm waters there that's a big shift from the last three years where we had la nina conditions basically persisting throughout the 2020 2021 and 2022 hurricane seasons. However, you also see an extremely warm Atlantic at the same time. So that red rectangle denotes what's known as the Atlantic's main development region. And so as you would expect, the main development region is where most of the hurricanes that form in the Atlantic develop. Um, and so we have effectively record warm waters there, but also a fairly robust El Nino event, not the strongest on record, but it's it's getting up towards the moderate to potentially even strong threshold for the peak of the hurricane season. So we have these two kind of clash of the titans going on, um, and that's really where the big uncertainty lies with the 2023 season. If we had El Nino and the Atlantic was kind of near average water temperatures, we'd be forecasting an extremely quiet season. Alternatively, if we had, say, neutral conditions or even La Nina conditions in the tropical Pacific, given how warm the Atlantic is, we'd be forecasting a crazy busy hyperactive hurricane season. Um, but El Nino is here. Um, hopefully some of you remember, uh, the late great Chris Farley and, um, as the wrestler El Nino back and I, this was during the, uh, 1997, um, El Nino event, but we do have El Nino and you know, El Nino is likely to persist and probably get stronger over the next several months. So here this blue rectangle denotes what's known as the Nino 3.4 region. And the Nino 3.4 region is the region that NOAA uses to monitor um, El Nino conditions. So when water temperatures in that box are half a degree Celsius or more, warmer than normal, NOAA will declare an El Nino event provided those water temperatures persist and the other atmospheric circulation factors also point towards El Nino and if the water temperatures in that box are half a degree celsius or more colder than normal NOAA will declare a La Nina event i think that's important to realize is that you don't need huge temperature changes small temperature changes in the tropics make big differences in how the atmosphere then responds and again it's really critical how the atmosphere then responds for what drives overall um, what's going to happen with the atlantic hurricane season um and you know it's a pretty much a slam dunk we're going to have el nino for the peak of the season which is august through october there is a large spread in the outcomes and you know whether you have a weak el nino or a strong el nino is a big difference so normally kind of colloquially half a degree celsius to to one degree celsius is, is a is a weak el nino one to one and a half degrees is a moderate el nino one and a half anything exceeding one and a half is a strong El Nino. So I would say at this point, it's a pretty good bet we're going to have a moderate to strong El Nino for the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. But again, if it's one degree versus two degrees, that makes a big difference in the atmospheric circulation. I think there's a lot, there's still quite a bit of uncertainty as to exactly how strong this El Nino is going to be. But obviously too, you know, we are in August, so the El Nino can get stronger, but we don't have that much more time before the peak of the season. The peak of the season is only about a month away. The hurricane season peaks on september 10th um as you would expect given how hot the or warm the atlanta or the warm the pacific is rather el nino is pretty much a sure bet uh, noah has about a, about a 95 percent chance of el nino for the peak of the atlantic hurricane season um and normally in an el nino um this is a nice schematic that noah put together uh this is basically the anomalous circulation that you get in an el nino event we since you have warmer water in the eastern and central tropical pacific that tends to shift where the thunderstorms form in the tropical pacific and so dr gray is to always talk about an in, in up and out circulation in the tropics where you have thunderstorms and so at low levels you have low level flow going or low level winds going into those thunderstorms the air goes up in the thunderstorms and then spreads out at upper levels so across the caribbean and across the atlantic and in el nino you get Basically what we showed earlier, upper level westerly winds, lower level easterly winds, that increase your vertical shear. You also tend to get a big old branch of subsiding air over the Atlantic, and where you have subsidence, you tend to have higher pressure and a more stable atmosphere. So this is kind of your cartoon of what normally happens in an El Nino year. So let's see kind of how that's tracking for 2023. So this is a plot showing the correlation uh, since 1979 between Nino, the Nino 3.4 index, which again is an index that NOAA uses to monitor El Nino, and sea level pressure. And so when you have an El Nino, you tend to get warmer waters and lower pressure in the eastern and central tropical Pacific, and you get higher pressure over the Atlantic and the tropics. But in June and July of 2023, we actually had below normal pressures across the tropical Atlantic and especially low in the subtropical Atlantic. And when you have these extremely low pressures in the subtropical Atlantic, what that tends to do is weaken your winds blowing across the Atlantic Ocean. The reason we have the trade winds is because you have, canonically, you have high pressure in the subtropics low pressure in the tropics. And so the winds circulating around that high pressure basically are are driven, are basically the trade winds. That's the reason you have those trades. And so when you have a very low pressure in the subtropics that weakens the trades, weaker winds blowing across the ocean means less evaporation, um, which means less cooling and tends to warm up the tropical Atlantic, which is what we've seen. Um, The Atlantic always warms up from spring to summer, but it's warmed up a lot faster than normal in 2023 um and so here again we're looking at these vertical wind shear anomalies um and so over the atlantic this is looking at july 4th to august 2nd which is the latest data uh that i had available from the european center um and you look at the shear across the atlantic you know it's a bit high in the western caribbean low farther east a little bit high farther to the um closer to africa but overall you know you're not seeing a massive wall of shear that you normally see in an el nino year And so I put together a scatter plot, and so here's a plot showing the July anomaly in the tropical Pacific on the y-axis, so warmer waters in that region indicating El Nino, and on the x-axis we have zonal wind shear. Um, And so if we look historically, there's a pretty strong positive relationship. Anytime you get a correlation of 0.7 in weather or in climate, that's pretty good. Um, So you see a pretty coherent relationship where warmer waters in the tropical Pacific drive higher shear. And then we see 2023, you know, it's not really fitting real well on that little trend line. You know, if you look at the other years where you've had water temperatures similar to 2023, we would expect um, shear of about six, seven meters per second higher, um, about 10 to 12 knots. And so overall, you know, this year, it's not behaving quite like your typical el nino and so that's one of the things these climate models were projecting was that even though we had el nino we wouldn't necessarily see the wind shear response that we typically see and this is through august 2nd we could actually update this uh, when the european center uh, reanalysis data comes out, which is about five, six days delayed. That shear is even going to go lower because the Caribbean's generally had low shear the last few days uh, when they do their final analysis. So, you know, 2023, from that perspective, is not playing exactly like we would expect uh, for an El Nino year, at least as of yet. Um, and some of that I think is likely due to the fact that the Atlantic is so hot. And really, you know, when we're talking about how the El Nino impacts the Atlantic, you know, each of these, the, the global atmosphere ocean circulation function as a single unit. So you can't just say, we have El Nino, that's all we need to know, here's what's gonna happen. Or the Atlantic's warm, here's what we need, that's all we need to know. It's how all these basins play together. And so when you have an El Nino, you have a warmer ocean and a warmer atmosphere in the tropical Pacific Ocean. And be- because of that warmth, you tend to have higher heights at upper levels in the atmosphere. On average in the tropical Atlantic, in an El Nino the water temperature are near average and so the heights there don't change that much so at upper levels you have higher heights in the Pacific relatively low heights in the Atlantic and that tends to help drive that westerly wind shear whereas this year your heights are high everywhere because it's hot pretty much everywhere and so all of those gradients or differences aren't as strong and so that's probably one of the reasons why we're not seeing as strong of shear in the Atlantic as you normally would expect for an El Nino Um, and again, the waters in the Atlantic right now are are very, very warm, um, near record temperatures to record warm, depending on exactly, um, where you look in the ocean basin. Um, and so here's a plot showing correlations between sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic and accumulated cycle and energy, which is a geeky metric that accounts for storm frequency, intensity, and duration. So weak short-lived storms like Arlene or Cindy this year generate very low levels of ACE, long-lived major hurricanes like an Irma or uh dorian generate tremendous levels of ace Um, and so if you look at uh, august sea surface temperatures correlated with seasonal levels of accumulated cyclone energy and we toggle back and forth between what we currently observe and what's kind of the optimal correlation pattern for a busy hurricane season you can see the match is pretty good so again if we didn't have the El Nino, we'd be going for an extremely busy season So again, it kind of comes down to this clash of the titans. Um, I do wanna draw your attention that when we do these forecasts, uh, we use a variety of different models. We use statistical models, which are based on historical data. We use statistical dynamical models, which use um, like the European Center, the UK Met Office, the Japan Meteorological Agency's models to forecast the large scale environment. And then assuming those forecasts of the large scale environment are correct, for the peak of the season, how would the Atlantic hurricane activity typically respond? With these forecasts, we do provide uncertainty bars. Um, And so obviously, we know know, these numbers are our best estimate. But obviously, there is uncertainty. And this year, again, there's even more uncertainty than would be from your normal historical errors. but this gives you an idea of kind of the uncertainty associated with these outlooks. The reason why we do the midpoint and emphasize the midpoint is because that gives kind of the general public, your best estimate as to what's going to happen. If you provide a range, Often what what gets reported is the high end of the range. So if they say, if you forecast 7 to 11 hurricanes, um, the media will often jump and say, oh, it's up to 11 hurricanes, which the general public then views as 11 hurricanes, as opposed to what you're really forecasting, which is the midpoint is nine. Um, But we do have uncertainties. And obviously, again, this year, the uncertainty is very, very high because we don't really have any great analogs. That's kind of the bread and butter of seasonal predictions or forecasting in general, right? Even if you're using dynamical models, it's always like, oh, we've seen this pattern before, and here's how things occurred when we had this pattern. We don't really have a great analog this year. 2023 is kind of out on its own. We've had really warm Atlantics before, but we haven't had those paired with a strong El Nino or a moderate to strong El Nino. And we've had moderate to strong El Ninos, but the Atlantic hasn't been nearly as warm as it is this year. So kind of how all this plays out really does remain to be seen. However, The next time we get this kind of set up, well, 2023 will be a great analog, so we'll just see how 2023 uh, pans out. Um, One index that we are forecasting this year that we haven't forecast before is accumulated cyclone energy or ACE west of 60 degrees west. And so I call this kind of angst ACE, and the reason is that... That's kind of basically a longitude line that delineates about where the the islands are in the Caribbean. So you're talking your lesser Antilles, your greater Antilles. Um and basically when you have um ace west of 60 degrees that is where a lot of people live and so basically when you have strong storms in that region people are concerned Uh, these storms are either going to make landfall or certainly cause quite a bit of concern and so in general this actually index actually correlates better also with landfalling storms in the north atlantic not just the united states but also talking canada mexico caribbean central america Um, and so in general relatively speaking in el nino years you get a little bit less ace west of 60 degrees than you do in La Nina and the reason why that's the case is likely due to the fact that in El years, your, your subtropical high tends to be somewhat weaker and because you have a weaker subtropical high that tends to favor recurvature of hurricanes um, so they're less likely to track west of 60 more likely just to stay out in the open Atlantic um, so now I want to talk a little more about this hurricane season and so it's been an interesting year uh, this is the third year in a row we've had a pretty decent gap um, where you haven't had storms during some point between mid-July and say, mid-August last year was obviously especially remarkable because we went all the way from july 3rd to september 1st with no storms the first time we had had that long of a period back since 1941 prior to uh, the show beginning we were talking baseball in 1941 that was the year that the splendid splinter ted williams hit 406 um so it's been a long time um but this year you know we did have storm we did have dawn in july but right now it's fairly quiet and so there is a lot of questions you know what's going on you know the bell rings and not that long and why aren't the storms there and if you look at the hurricane center this morning the tropical weather outlook uh, they just put out a couple hours ago they're not anticipating any storm formations in the next few days but we did actually have brett and cindy so storms three and four on this track map form in june it was the first time on record we had two main development region storms during june and that's typically when you have storm formations early in the season, it doesn't really correlate with what happens the rest of the season. But if they form in the deep tropics, such as Brent, and Cindy did, that is typically a harbinger of a very busy overall Atlantic hurricane season. But again, since then, we've had um, basically we had dawn, which formed at higher latitudes. Uh, it almost hit for the hurricane cycle. Uh, it went through subtropical storms, subtropical depression tropical depression tropical storm and hurricane just missed out a major hurricane and it would have hit for the uh the hurricane cycle no storm on record has actually ever hit for the hurricane cycle so we'll see if we can get one uh this year but typically if it's going to happen it's going to have to be something at a at higher latitudes to re-hit all those different phases um so far though we still are tracking a bit above normal and again that's because the atlantic hurricane season is extremely peaked it's very different from say the western north pacific or the eastern north pacific the atlantic season between August 20th and October 10th, about 90% of your season. Like it's very, very peak. So it's really um, the next week or two where if these seasonal forecasts that are going for above normal are gonna verify, things really do need to start heating up. Obviously that's really what um, was a big surprise to us. Last year, uh, the the season ended up being kind of near normal overall, but again, it really didn't ramp up until September. Being, typically you start to see stuff really ramp up in about a week or 10 days. Um, so here's kind of where we are this is a nice plot that from the national hurricane center showing um your climatology so where you kind of how a normal season behaves and you can see we're kind of in a little bit of a lull before the kind of the calm before the storm so to speak historically and again there's been busy seasons that had very little till September 1st and then really took off there's been other seasons that were really busy early on and then died down and so it kind of remains to be seen obviously how the 2023 hurricane season is going to play out um at this point i think you know nothing really would surprise me really in terms of how this season plays out maybe el nino is really going to rear its head and basically the hurricane season will not be nearly as busy as us and other groups are forecasting or maybe it'll be super hyperactive we just have this really too early to know for sure at this point um but again the bell does ring on august 20th dr gray used to actually ring a physical bell every year on august 20th signaling the active part of the atlantic hurricane season um and so we will be ringing the bell in his honor i'm not not on the 20th because that's on a weekend but on august 19th which is a weekday we'll be ringing the bell um, in his honor um again signifying the, the active climatological part of the atlantic hurricane season um but, you know, I spent some time yesterday and I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, why is the season kind of gotten quiet? And some of it's just climatologically, you know, we had a lot of stuff early and that's not normal. So this is actually more normal to not have all that much. But, you know, the question is, you know, why haven't we had the storms? And, you know, we, suddenly we haven't had tropical disturbances and there have actually been two systems that the Hurricane Center had a high chance of formation on that just never made it. Um, and. You know, environment is critical, but there's internal structural characteristics as well um, that can determine whether a storm forms or not. And we look at the system in the Atlantic that actually didn't form in the Atlantic but became Hurricane Dora, which is now cruising along throughout the Central Tropical Pacific, likely to cross the International Dayline in a few days. That system, when the Hurricane Center started monitoring it, and you look at some of the environmental conditions, were extremely conducive for formation warm waters low shear high moisture and yet no formation and so the environmental conditions will load the dice but also there are some internal characteristics and we don't necessarily understand exactly how all that necessarily interplays with each other for genesis genesis is a really challenging problem but if i were to talk to you last year or i did talk with you last year around this time and you know there was question you know why is stuff not really taking off i would have said a lot of it was you know we had a lot of dry air we had a lot of dust this year not the case um this is a plot showing dust aerosol optical depth so basically the amount of dust in the atlantic and so here the black line is climatology the blue line is 2023 it's been below average and that's probably one of the reasons why the atlantic is so warm right now is we've had really weak winds which have helped reduce evaporation help warm up the atlantic but we also have had very little amounts of dust and so dust is good at reflecting solar radiation back and back to space and basically then you're not able to get the as much warming whereas if you don't have the dust the sun can just beat down on the surface um, and cause additional warming so i would say dust is not a big thing to blame for 2023 so far um the shear again we looked at this plot earlier yeah i mean It might explain why we hadn't said stuff in the Western Caribbean, but these systems coming off Africa, in general, they've moved through an area of fairly low shear, and yet we haven't seen the storms. Um, So overall, vertical wind shear, again, blue is this year, 2023. 2022 is climatology. You can see, again, or sorry, 2023 is in blue, climatology is in black. You can see, again, you know, kind of bouncing around a little high, a little low, but again, I wouldn't say there's any smoking gun thing with shear as well. Um, and this is a nice plot. This is um, from the Cooperative Institute for Research in the Atmosphere, these last few plots. And this is kind of um, um, an amalgam of environmental parameters. And so, black is climatology, blue is 2023. And these are formation probabilities in the tropical Atlantic. You can see, environmentally speaking, probabilities are really high. Um, and they've generally been well above climatology. And yet, we still haven't seen storms. Um, and so, overall, I would say the environment necessarily hasn't been. You know super harsh there again there's just internal ca- structural characteristics and you're kind of all these parameters are averaging over a large region and maybe it's just that you know, the overall environment is fairly conducive over a broad region, but where the systems happen to be, the environment is not as conducive. Um, you'd have to go through each individual wave and look at what was driving the environment around each individual wave. Um, and Genesis is, an ex- Genesis is a really challenging problem. Um, and so, again, environment loads of dice, but there's internal internal characteristics as well. Um, but again, I was hoping through analysis the last few days to kind of give you an answer. It's, it's this one quantity that's causing... That's why we haven't seen stuff, but again, I would say there's no like massive smoking gun answer here. Um, the pressures have broadly been higher um, since about the 20th of July. Um, and when you have higher pressures, that tends to be associated with more of the sinking motion. Um, the models are forecasting these pressures to come back down. Um, so I think the, inv- the instability in the atmosphere is going to come back up, um, potentially leading to some higher per- potential for genesis here um, in the in the not too distant future. Um, I like to look obviously at rainfall over Africa as well. So this is um satellite derived, or um yeah, I think this is satellite derived. it's basically rainfall estimates over West Africa or over Africa. And so here greens are above, oranges and yellows are below. Uh since early July, it's kind of a mixed bag. I generally look between about 10 to 15, 10 to 20 degrees north. Um you can see. Maybe a little below near average. I mean, I wouldn't say, again, there's a smoking gun factor here either, indicating why the season hasn't um, continued to be busy. Um, but again, normally we don't see a lot in July, even through about this point in August. It, again, the season doesn't really ramp up for about another week climatologically. Um, looking ahead, um, you know, the hurricane center says nothing for the next week. Um, I agree, like, there doesn't look any massive smoking guns for the next week, but overall um in about five to ten to six to ten days there is a pretty favorable low-level winds so here uh reds indicate low-level westerly winds blues indicate low-level easterly wind anomalies and so that area um where these systems tend to come off africa is going to be in an area of kind of horizontal spin and so often when you get these kind of effectively like monsoon trough kind of setups that tends to help spin up storms in the atlantic so you know, you're still a few days out, but I would say maybe a week or a little bit beyond, you might start to see, um, you know, potential for something developing in the Atlantic um, east of the islands. Um, so a lot of people will look at these operational models and say, oh, the, you know, the Canadian model had it this run, then it fell out the next. And so models again kind of really do struggle with genesis and so i like to look at a lot of these ensembles and so this is the this is this morning's ensemble outlook from the uh european center uh, for medium range weather forecast it's ensemble prediction system which uses 51 members um and you can see it it's fairly busy um european center you have to be careful has been too bullish the last few weeks but there are signals of a, in about a week or so there are potentially of you know, a couple of different waves developing off of the coast of africa obviously as you get further down in time um models will start to just kind of do their own thing so i wouldn't necessarily take anything specific and say you know we're going to see a storm potentially threatening one specific area but just to give you an idea that there are potentials coming out i would say in about a week to 10 days there's a couple of wave candidates coming off africa that look like they have at least some model support um for genesis um this is the similar kind of output from the um uh, for the united states the global ensemble forecast system um it's a little less bullish with these waves um so we'll, we'll see what happens obviously if you know two weeks from now we're still looking at five named storms one hurricane um and there's nothing on the horizon then obviously you know we have to ser- seriously be rethink- rethinking uh the for- the forecast for this year but again i think there are some there are some indications I'd, I'd be surprised if we went through all of august with no name storms like we did last year uh, but you might be thinking that Klotzbach that guy, CSU, they're out to lunch, so we want to look at somebody else. Uh, so I invite you to check out SeasonalHurricanePredictions.org. It's a website that has, um, we have about, I think, 28 different groups contributing seasonal forecasts um, this year. These include government agencies, private sector weather companies, as well as universities. And the forecasts for 2023 really do kind of run the gamut, and this is one of the reasons why I We've got developed this website in the first place uh so it was put together by our group at csu uh, with funding from AXAXL and barcelona super Computing center really did um do they basically developed the website and did alliance did a, quite a bit of the work on getting this website up and running so here are the forecasts these are the number of hurricanes so purples are private sector weather companies greens are government agencies and blues are i'm sorry greens are Greens are universities and blues are government agencies. And you can see, there's a huge spread this year. Had I shown you the same plot from last year or 2021, there wasn't nearly this kind of spread. And I think this really highlights the uncertainty associated with these outlooks. Some groups are forecasting, you know, a a near to below normal season, five, six hurricanes. Others are extremely bullish. Um, with high ends of ranges going all the way up to like 14 hurricanes Um, and especially the dynamical models, the European Center and the UK Met Office have been very, very aggressive uh, for the 2023 hurricane season. So again, there's a lot of spread Um, and just to highlight too, the red dot is the observed value to date. So we've had one hurricane done and the average about all the seasonal forecasts is eight um, so far this year um and so with that i will put up my contact information and i will try to uh answer any questions keeping in mind that you know This hurricane season, I'd say, certainly is really keeping us humble. Um, And, you know, there's still a lot that we do not understand. And I feel like I've been in this business for over 20 years and sometimes I feel like, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't really know what the heck's going on. And so this year, I think is really just a real challenge because there's, we're again, kind of in a space that we haven't been in um, historically. And so we have to kind of watch and wait and see, you know, how the season's gonna play out.
1: I I could come up with a uh, quick question here. Uh, I was really uh, intrigued by the sh- the shear problem. Uh, is there a way to look at the uh, contribution to the shear to see uh, how much contribution the, the much lower than average easterly trades uh, are to the to the lower shear values?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's mostly still upper levels, um, just because your magnitude of the shear at low levels. I mean, you're talking maybe like a meter per second difference at low levels, and like. Three, four, five four five meters per second at upper level so usually the the big driver of the shear is your upper level winds and that's what bill gray used to always look at i mean you look at the low level winds but he always used to look at the upper level winds and i think historically we focused a ton on upper level winds because we didn't really have the capability to be able to detect measure the differences i think in the low level winds as much because they were fairly small with now with some of these Better technology and better reanalysis data sets, we can kind of better measure the the subtle differences in low level winds. But upper level winds, the gradients were strong enough where in El Nino you might have, you know, 10, 15 knots stronger upper level winds than in a La Niña. That you could measure with balloons and other stuff, um, even 20, 30 years or 40 years ago. So most of the contribution in general is coming from the upper level winds. But the level winds are not <laughs> if you get over short time periods, like a few days, certainly the law of the winds can also be the they can be at least half of the driver of the of the sheer differences, depending on the uh, on the situation.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, been a while since we talked about uh, the uh, role of uh, the rainy season in the in the tropical uh, landmass of Africa. Uh, could you uh, refresh our memory as to how that uh, plays out for the hurricane season?
2: yeah and so you know we used to actually use rainfall over africa as as, as an explicit predictor in our statistical models Uh, we don't use it anymore um i think there's just been there's been some measurement challenges over africa but in general when west africa so the Sahel region so just south of the sahara desert is wetter than normal that tends to be associated with effectively not necessarily more easterly waves so these thunderstorm complexes but more robust easterly waves and if the waves are more robust that they tend to have basically just have a higher chance of forming and becoming tropical storms i mean there's certainly years where Africa's pretty wet and the atlantic is near average like kind of like last year africa was really wet and atlantic was near average but in general if you have a wet west africa and the waves are more robust it kind of loads the dice that they're more likely to become tropical storms although there's certainly been cases of waves that looked really healthy coming off africa and just completely fell flat the second they hit the atlantic if the shears really strong or the waters are just too cold
1: okay yeah so so it's basically a contribution to the moisture content and the waves
2: so, yeah okay. yeah just the, um and also to like the vort. so basically the law will spin in the waves kind of how organized they are coming off africa because you will occasionally see systems coming out of africa that are like already rotating like they they come off africa and they hit the ground running i remember the first storm that i saw when i came to csu in 2000 alberto basically it was like spinning over west africa and it came off the coast and blew right up whereas there's others that kind of look eh, marginal coming off Africa and, you know, 24, 48 hours later, they're, they're, they're off to the races. So it's not, it's not like, that's the only thing that matters, but it also, that is something that we also look at because if Africa is really, really suppressed in terms of thunderstorms, in terms of precipitation, that tends to be associated with just overall quieter hurricane season.
1: Fascinating. Uh, earlier, you said, uh, we, before we got on the air, you said the, you had some interesting thoughts on, uh, 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 a a link perhaps with uh, Hurricane Dora and what's going on with El Niño. You wanna fill us in?
2: Yeah, so Hurricane Dora, which actually was being monitored for formation in the Atlantic, um, that system, didn't form in the Atlantic, but did form in the Pacific. And it's taken a very, a pretty low latitude track. And so when you have storms take low latitude tracks in the Pacific ocean, um, on the Southern circuit, you know, when you have counterclockwise circulation on the Southern periphery of those systems, you have low level westerly winds. Um, and if you look at the low level westerly winds near the equator, they've been quite a, they've been fairly robust out of the West, even not, not, even Easterly, but actually out of the West. And so when you have westerly winds, that tends to reinforce el nino because waters in the western tropical pacific tend to be warmer than waters in the eastern tropical pacific yeah and here's a nice plot showing dora's track and so around the southern end of that circulation you have low-level winds out of the west so i think that westerly wind stress on the ocean is likely to potentially exacerbate or amplify the impacts of el nino so i think that's another wild card that you know even when we did out the seasonal forecast august 3rd we weren't you know dora was a potential system for him, but we didn't necessarily expect it to be a category Four hurricane for several days tracking south of the west um so it's definitely been you can see tropical low latitude tropical cyclones can amp up el nino and we saw that back in may where we had um a low latitude a, t- a system that became um let me see let me just remember um the name of the system the one in the western north pacific I uh, used to be better at memorizing all this stuff. As they get older, uh, these names kind of fade out. Of, out. But Maywar, um, that system formed at fair, or was getting going at fairly low latitudes. You know, a lot of low-level westerly winds from that kind of developing monsoonal system, um, and that I think really helped kind of take us from neutral El Ni- neutral and so to El Niño. So these systems can really amplify El Niño um, if they if they if they track at really low latitudes.
1: It is interesting because it looks like the next one up in the Eastern Pacific, at least what little I looked at, it is also trending towards a straight westerly track at a fairly low latitude, depending on how big it develops.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is definitely in that the systems tracking. So normally in an El Nino, you tend to see Eastern North Pacific storms tracking farther to the West, but... They don't necessarily track south of the U.S., they just have a pretty strong subtropical ridge. And these systems this year, or Dora and potentially this next system, they're able to actually thrive because right now, normally in El Nino, you have warm waters in the tropical Pacific, but they also extend farther to the north. This year, we actually have kind of the opposite, where near Hawaii, the waters are actually really cold. Um, And so if a storm were to track straight west towards Hawaii, normally the waters do get a little bit cooler, but there's a lot of shear, whereas a storm like Calvin, we saw when Calvin tracked towards Hawaii, the water's just really cold, so basically couldn't really support deep convection. Whereas these storms tracking, if they track south of due west, or the waters are a lot warmer, um, the shear over Dora is about five knots or less, and this has this nice annular uh, annular, uh, circulation, where it doesn't have a lot of like outer banding features, but those systems tend to be really robust and really kind of hold on. Um, They're called annular storms. I prefer donuts, because I like donuts and I think they look like donuts. but thankfully in the case of dora it looks like it's not going to end up doing causing really any significant impacts in terms of the hurricane itself causing impacts to any land
1: masses that's cool i like that donut thing maybe we can come up with color scales and you can put your favorite flavor in there so <laughs> covered donut flying across there uh, this Exactly. Thing, this one looks like it's going to maintain hurricane strength all the way through the date line. that's fairly unusual isn't it
2: yeah yeah i think I'm I need to look back and see, but I know Dora in nineteen ninety nine, same name, um, did something fairly similar. I'm not sure it was Hurricane Strength when I don't know, across the day line, but it did something fairly similar. So um that's interesting because normally dateline crossers tend to be more of an El Nino thing, um, but 1999 was a pretty strong. So it was actually the opposite with La Nina. So uh, these systems can do odd things even in other years. But yeah, it is interesting how the storm with the same name did did something similar it went across the dateline. Although it looks like about the time Dora hits the dateline, it's going to get slammed by shear. So I suspect its traverse of the western North Pacific will be will be fairly short.
1: Hell, why don't you jump in here? You look like you're thinking deeply.
3: Yeah, I am. Phil, a fantastic presentation. Phil, sometimes I hear people talk about more or less likeliness of hurricane activity based on the Madden-Julian Oscillation. What is that and how could that impact hurricane development in the Atlantic?
2: Yeah, so the Madden-Julian Oscillation is effectively equatorial thunderstorm activity that propagates around the globe about every 30 to 70 days. Um, Sometimes it's pretty robust, sometimes it's not. Right now it's really not, which is why I didn't really talk about it. So you have these things like El Nino that kind of will modulate seasonal hurricane activity. And then you have equatorial waves like the Madden-Julian Oscillation, um, Rossby waves, Kelvin waves that will mod- modulate things on shorter timescales. And so this year, you know, if you were to get a robust Madden-Julian Oscillation that um, basically were to enhance Atlantic storm activity or enhance, a- thunderstorm activity, say, over Africa and the Indian Ocean around September 5th, September 10th, we could see a huge flurry of activity. Um, Whereas if for some reason it was actually in the Pacific Ocean and was enhancing storm activity there, that could really knock down your storm activity. Right now, there's not really any big indications that the MJO is going to be doing very much for the next couple of weeks, but that kind of remains to be seen. Um, The models have been kind of all over the place. But right now, it doesn't look like anything um imminent in terms of the mjo but yes there are years where the mjo um can be a big driver of kind of these sub-seasonal peaks and so that's why at csu i didn't mention this but we do two-week forecasts as well as seasonal forecasts starting in early august we do two-week forecasts um to try to kind of pinpoint when during the season we expect to see above or below normal periods um with the idea being that you can have a busy hurricane season that has a quiet period like 2020 which seemed like storm storm a day or storm every other day but late september 2020 the season got really quiet for about 10 days and then it obviously really ramped back up um and there's other years like 2018 which you know overall was a that's a head scratcher year a week el nino cold atlantic and yet still above normal uh but early september we had a really big flurry of activity that year and that likely was modulated at least somewhat by a robust phase of the MJO coming through so it can kind of be it can either you know, I think that's some of the some of the uncertainty bounds that we have with these seasonal forecasts is if you get a robust MJO that enhances storm activity at, quote unquote, the right time in the Atlantic, that can really bump up the Atlantic, maybe relative to what you would get if you had an MJO that, say, passed through now, and then you got the suppressed phase during the peak of the season. Um, so it, right now, though, we don't really see any big signs of an MJO, um, of a robust MJO coming through but certainly that's something we'll be uh watching very closely and we'll have more to say our next two-week forecast will come out on uh, august the 17th
1: we'll be looking forward awesome. to that phil uh you told us you needed to depart at 10 45 it is the <laughs> witching hour now so uh i know you're busy and doing these kind of talks with uh throughout this time of the season thank you so much for spending time with us
2: yeah thanks so much take care everyone
0: Thanks, Phil. We appreciate it. And, thanks, and we have a lot of questions coming in online, wish you had time to get to all of them, but thank you for your time today, Phil. We appreciate it. And thanks for the good insight, uh, Bill and Hal, on the questions. So thanks, Phil. Uh, good luck in the next presentation. Time to regroup and hit start again. We thank appreciate it. Thank you, take care. Bye-bye.
3: Yeah, that's great, Bill. Thanks for the tropical update there. Wow, what a great broadcast here to get to hear Phil give a presentation and interact with him and ask him any questions. Well, y'all, with GeoTrek, we're traveling the world and finding stories related to extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. We're trying to understand the physical processes behind these extremes, their impact on society and what we can do to get out ahead of them to reduce the losses. Y'all, we're moving into hurricane season. I wanted to thank everyone for making us the number one podcast on the topic of natural disasters, according to Feedspot. Last year, we did a lot of podcasts related to hurricane preparedness and hurricane education and you can find a lot of those on our website just wherever you listen to podcasts whether it's apple podcast spotify wherever you listen check out GeoTrek podcast last year we did a two-part series in august that was with um chris franklin the chief meteorologist with wwl tv he's a new orleans native he's worked there in new orleans for a long time and we did a two-part podcast, episodes number 42 and 43, called Remembering Hurricane Katrina with Chris Franklin. Check those out, y'all. Katrina has so many, uh, so many lessons that we can learn from it, uh, all the way from preparedness to forecasting to impact really interesting to hear chris franklin's perspective on that again he was a, he was a new meteorologist right out of meteorology school with a new degree and there he was working in new orleans when katrina approached really interesting to hear his perspective on what what the storm impacts were his his play by play through the storm And then long-term hearing about the assessment of the region for risk from future hurricanes. So again, that's a two-part podcast episodes 42 and 43. We aired them last summer. We're anticipating a lot of episodes this year as well, related to hurricanes. I like to get on the ground in hurricane disaster zone. So a lot of the content's really fresh, really raw. The ones I recorded with Chris Franklin were recorded remotely uh, before hurricane season really ramped up last year. But you can check those out wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I'm going to share my screen here and I'm going to share a little bit about Galveston Hurricane Tour. This is um, a really educational thing that I developed right before Hurricane Harvey hit in uh, 2017. And uh, let me share a little bit with you right here about the hurricane tour. I'll start by actually looking at the tour types. So this is a tour in Galveston, Texas, the site of the deadliest disaster in US history. And this started again in 2017. I've been doing them for six years. And now, really, the most popular tour we have is a walking tour, generally on Saturday nights, but we can customize it for a group. But we go downtown. uh, We look at some areas that have had huge impacts, not only from the 1900 storm, but also storms like Hurricane Carla and Hurricane Ike. And this is a big impact of the hurricanes we've had here onto historic preservation as well. So we go into historic neighborhoods. This this neighborhood with this picture here, you can see a tree sculpture in the foreground every one of these houses in the background has a high watermark from Hurricane Ike. So we really talk about the impacts of hurricanes on historic preservation. We go downtown, you know, Galveston, we have high watermarks for at least five hurricanes. And we really preserve this history. That's something we talk a lot about. We, we not only look at the local history, but we look at some of these educational lessons that we can apply beyond Galveston as well. We have bus groups and school groups that have sometimes come. So uh, you can come with your group. Last year, I think I did four school, school tours, especially in the springtime. So especially I'd say Houston Metro, there are tons of schools that maybe do a curriculum on natural disasters or meteorology. A lot of times they'll come down to the island. I'll meet them for an extended lunch and show them around. It's great for, I get a lot of fifth through seventh, eighth graders that come in the tour and it's just uh, great to spend a few hours with them. And also university students. I've had universities come, especially during spring break from Northern States, in part to thaw out, in part to learn about the coastal environment. Sometimes you'll meet students that have never been to the beach before, uh, that, let alone the, the place like Galveston Island, where we've had so many impacts over the years. So um, just really cool opportunity to to come down with a group. Now, before we close out here, I'll just give you a, a few snapshots here of what the uh, what the walking tour looks like. And uh, again, we're, we're covering not only the local history of the deadliest natural disaster in us history, but, uh, but also just a a lot of innovations that happened here, you know, uh, here in Galveston, you can go to the federal building where there used to be a radar dome and Dan rather was there during hurricane Carla, and that was the first televised broadcast of a landfalling hurricane in hurricane Carla back in, uh, 1961. So we, we cover that history of innovations that have happened here. We talk about the impact of storm surges. This is a photograph after the 1900 storm. Again, people often think of hurricanes as wind events, but it's really the water that produces the most destruction and kills the most people. And so we look at uh, you know, pictures of the, the 1900 storm and previous hurricanes here, but unfortunately that's not just something from the distant past. I also have pictures here from Hurricane Michael in 2018. We see the impacts of storm surges even to this day. Uh, along the Gulf Coast. Uh, These are photographs, a lot of photographs from Galveston in 1900. And we we do talk a bit about the death and destruction. You know, you you see the smoke there from fires where they were burning the bodies after the 1900 storm. Galveston really responded um, in a a fiercely resilient way after the 1900 storm, building one of the world's longest seawalls. And check this out, constructing four ocean going ships in Europe, building a canal, digging a canal through Galveston city, and then basically, floating these ships called dredge hoppers across the Atlantic, they dredged up sediment from Galveston Bay over a six year period and then piped that sediment into the city, raising an inhabited city as high as 17 feet. Tremendous amount of resiliency that happened here to preserve the city and protect it from the future. We talk about all of that in the tour. Uh, we definitely talk about the grade raising. Again, I have hundreds of photos, no time to really go through all of them right now. We do talk about evacuation and shelter in place. Uh, we, we This place, Ursuline Academy, there's a plaque out in front of where it used to be located uh, where it talks about the 1,500 people that were saved by the Ursuline nuns. This was a cathedral and a, and a basically Catholic academy that withstood and barely survived the 1900 storm. 1,500 lives were saved inside there during 1900. And then in 1961, unfortunately, the the convent and the cathedral were taken out by Hurricane Carla tornado in 1961. So you know, a lot of history here again. Um, I think I'll, I'll leave us with that and stop sharing my screen, but, uh, check out the tour. You can go to galvestonhurricanetour.com. Again, we get into the history here, the impacts, but it's well beyond death and destruction. We talk a lot about how to make yourself more resilient. We talk about a lot of these innovations that have happened here too, and how that can apply to your hurricane prone community, wherever you live. Uh, thanks Tim and Alex. Um, I'm sorry, Tim, go ahead.
0: I was going to say so much of it is about the timing. You know, we had the opportunity to do the tour during Oktoberfest. So that made it especially fun. Uh, But I love the stories As, as you're going down the streets and you stop and, and you stop at one location and talk about these buildings and the things that happened there. And you try to put the people back into time like that, like, like you were there.
3: Yeah, you know, and it, it's so much human interest, these survival stories, people that overcame unbelievable odds. Like Daisy Thorne, she lived in an apartment complex with 64 units. 63 of them were annihilated by the 1900 storm. She and her family were huddling in the only unit that survived. So we talk about these human interest stories and Tim, like you said, we try to align it with fun social events. We're doing a tour this year again during Galveston Hurricane. Uh, I'm sorry, dur- during Galveston Oktoberfest in late October. And the anniversary of the 1900 storm is on a Friday this year. There's gonna Going to be a community event that's on friday september 8th anniversary of the deadliest disaster in u.s history right here in galveston we're going to do a special event that evening so if people want to come we're often trying to tie it in with uh, social events here on the island
0: how long is the walk i remember it but i, I don't know how long it is it's not yeah. particularly long it's more you know just you know in the downtown area
3: Tim, thanks for asking. The walk is two miles, but the tour now runs about three and a half hours because we stop for gumbo and uh, and food in the middle. So uh,
0: we, we have a din- Wait. We,
3: we've built in a dinner stop. And at first, we, we it was optional, and everyone always wants to do it. We go to Little Daddy's Gumbo Bar, and uh, they have great seafood and and not seafood salads, gumbo, everything. So we basically walk for about an hour and a half take a one-hour dinner break, and then continue for about 45 minutes. So typically Saturday night, we do that walking tour, just a two-mile walk, but takes us over three hours because we stop a lot, and then we stop for dinner.
0: It's not so much exercise as it is learning.
3: (laughs) Yeah, a lot of education. And I want to say one last thing. You'll hear a lot of stories from me, but I'm amazed by how many people come on the tour that said, Oh, I remember Hurricane Carla or my parents told me about Hurricane Alicia. And so a lot of the visitors have stories themselves, survival stories from themselves or their family. So it's, it's designed to be very interactive. You'll learn from me, but also other other visitors on the tour.
0: You're still learning every time you do a tour, probably.
3: Sometimes I feel like I learn more from the visitors than they learn from me because I'm, someone just told me about their grandparent or um, great-grandparents that survived the 1900 storm. So um, we're still hearing fresh stories. It's pretty fascinating.
0: Terrific. We'll look forward to doing it again sometime because it really is a great tour. So, Hal, thank you for that and good luck with it. And, and tell them again the website. People want to check it out.
3: Yeah, it's uh, tour.com. And I feel it aligns. I know, um, Tim, what you and Alex and, and Bill have done really um, emphasizing education, not just for adults, but, you know, this year at NTWC in South Padre, we had the high school students and, you know, you guys are always trying to reach out and, and engage and educate as many people as possible. That's kind of what we're trying to do up here on the ground with the hurricane tour. So just go to com. Come on down to the island. Love to show you around.
0: I'm in for the gumbo on October fest. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> Thanks, Al. We appreciate it. Uh, Bill, any final thoughts today before we wrap this up? It was a great program again today. Yeah.
1: Uh, this, this year marks the 40th anniversary of the landfall of hurricane Alicia next week. Oh, wow. The date. Uh, so that's, that's there. We're, uh, 15 years past Ike. It's hard to believe.
0: <laughs> I remember in uh, hurricane Alicia sitting, uh, by the door of our newsroom with the door open so we could listen to KTRK, uh, KTRH uh, on the radio um, and listen to Wayne Dolcefino and all those guys because we backed the car up to the door so you could pick up Houston Raiders 300 miles away, but we could pick it up and listen to the landfall of Alicia. That was one of my first summers in Texas and that was introduction to hurricanes here. Uh, Quite an event.
3: Bill, they're obsessed with uh, these these Houston hurricanes down there in South Texas because they don't get hurricanes down there anymore. (laughs)
0: i like the way you think (laughs) i
3: I shouldn't say that we just recently had people talk about 1933 and 1967 so you know eventually it comes knocking on your door right this is this is
1: true we're like those golf announcers hal they say he he never three putts and the poor guy three putts the very next time up so tim tell everybody you're going to get a hurricane now because hal mentioned it yeah
0: exactly it just it's coming it's coming just plan on it guys thanks great program today Uh, Really insightful stuff. We appreciate it. It's 11 o'clock, so it's time to wrap up. Thanks to everybody who joined us online. We appreciate that. Uh, Some good questions came in. Sorry we didn't get to all of them today. Uh, Dr. Phil had to take off a little bit early, but he's already into his next presentation. So thank you, Dr. Phil, for being here today. Hal and Bill, great job as always. Appreciate the insight, the insightful questions. Thanks to our sponsors who make this event possible each and every week, USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, and Weather Boy. Those are the folks who uh, assure that we can be here uh, spreading the news with you and showing you what's going on, the latest in technology and the latest in uh, tropical weather here uh, in the Atlantic Basin. All right, that's it guys, thanks. Next week, it's uh, George Siegel from Last House Standing and Alan Strum, Meteorologist with WEAR in Pensacola, Florida. They'll be with us next Wednesday. So we hope to see you at uh, 10 o'clock next Wednesday morning. Until then, have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.